0: This week on The Backtable Podcast.
1: The thing that cannot be understated at all is if you are planning on doing something new, you just have to read every single article you can get your hands on and know all the pitfalls, know what can go wrong, know exactly what you're looking for, and just be very, very active in searching for information on how to do things correctly or as correctly as, as we think the right way to do it is right now.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions, and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. An AV fistula is a critical lifeline for end-stage renal disease patients on dialysis. See six-month outcomes from separate AV access maintenance trials evaluating PTA balloons, stents, and drug coated balloons at midtrona.com avdata. Now, back to the episode. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, I'm very excited to have a recurrent guest on, Shamit Desai. Welcome, Shamit.
1: Hey, what's up, Baron? Good to see you again.
0: Thanks, man. You know, if it, if our audience didn't catch it, Shamit was on episode 198 with one of his colleagues, and they were talking about, we were talking about the lesser-known community programs out there, both for training and for jobs, and how these kind of lesser-known community programs can actually be diamonds in the rough, right?
1: Yeah. We've gotten great feedback, so thanks so much for having us on, and thanks for having me on again.
0: Yeah, no, it's, we we got great feedback as well. I think people really appreciate the private perspective because we don't get that necessarily in training, and we don't a lot of us don't even know that it exists out there. So it was very cool for you guys to give some insight on on how that works. But before we get started, so today what we're going to talk about is how we develop these skill sets outside of training because you went to, you trained at Northwestern. I trained at Vanderbilt, both very IO heavy programs, uh, at least at the time when I went through there. And I didn't learn any PAD. I didn't learn any kyphoplasty. Not that those are really horrible things. It's just the way I think IR training was at that time. And this was like 10 years ago where there wasn't as much emphasis on those. And you could you could seek it out if you wanted to, but I just we were so busy with the cases that we had. It just was not part of you know the the service line at Vanderbilt at that mm-hmm. time. Things may have changed now. I don't I don't even know, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how we learn this stuff in practice and what the resources are. Uh, and before we get started, I want you just to give in case anybody didn't listen to your prior episode, just tell us a little bit about your training and your practice, and then we'll kind of lead into this whole aspect of deficiencies in our programs.
1: Yeah, totally. So I'm a fourth year attending. I practice in the Southland of Chicago, out of two hospitals. One is the U Chicago Ingalls Memorial Hospital, um, and the second is Franciscan Olympia Fields. I have a practice with five other interventional radiologists. It's in a pretty standard, like IRDR group, twenty something radiologists total. As far as training, I did everything after medical school at Northwestern. So I did my residency and fellowship there, and just as you said, it's especially because I did not switch programs between residency and fellowship. I was one of the last classes of the traditional one plus four plus one pathway. You know, I I did really see IR through the lens of uh, Northwestern IR, which was a, you know, unbelievable and fantastic autonomous program, extremely clinically focused, uh, which I, I think has done me a lot of favors out in real practice and, uh, you know, really relevant to our topic today, which is learning skill sets outside of, uh, you know, what you learned in fellowship. But I just want to touch on some things that I've kind of focused on outside of my training. And um, hopefully it'll help motivate some other young IRs to kind of pick up some skills along their early career path as well.
0: Thank you for that intro. I think that the discussion is not about pointing out deficiencies in training because, you know, these are excellent programs. But no program can teach you everything, even if it's, you know, the current IR residency or if the traditional fellowship route that that I went through. It's just hard to get all of it in, and and everybody has their strengths and everybody's got some weaknesses. It's hard to find a really well-rounded program out there. Uh, So when you're choosing a program, you definitely want to choose it based off of maybe what your interests are, whether it be professional research, private practice, and that should help you come out feeling confident. in in what you want to do, because we all know IR covers a wide breadth of of different procedures and disease processes. So, But I want to find out, when you started your job, what did you feel like your deficiencies were coming out of training and starting a new job in the community?
1: It's a really good question. And I think that one of the things that this question is really kind of uh, focused on, the the linchpin to this question, uh, I would say, is what exactly does your job do already when you're coming in? I joined a practice when I just came out of fellowship. I was gonna stay in the Chicagoland area because my wife was still training, which, you know, a lot of us are in that position. And my initial job did not have a very developed practice at all. I mean, they were the go-to four o'clock d clock practice. They were the the go-to templine line trialysis at, you know, 11 at night, call IR in, call their team in. That was definitely the kind of practice I joined. Initially, I was uh, very, very clinically focused in that job, and we, we did set up a clinic. Um, we had, at first, you know, support that went into this. However, you know, as as time went on, there was a lot of pushback um, from the diagnostic side in, in that particular job, and we weren't really able to develop as much as we wanted. Now, we did, we performed about 20 UFEs. They hadn't performed one in about 10 years before we joined, we did develop some PAD practice. We did, uh, we did the first few kyphos. We even introduced Spinejack, jack, um, which is you know a product that I'm that I really support in particular cases. Um, and they hadn't done any kypho before we got there. We had a lot of support from industry as well as from our IR colleagues um, who we'd reach out to, knowing that we were early career. But I eventually did leave that job, not only because my wife finished training, but also because the degree to which we were building the practice was not recognized when it was juxtaposed to like DR quote productivity. And so time in clinic was not given, you know, WRVU numerical value. So it wasn't sustainable in that group. I left on very good terms, but, you know, a big part of building a new skill set is actually having the support to build that skill set and really let it flourish.
0: Yeah, that's a great point because I think we get excited coming out of fellowship with doing all these big cases and just feeling like you wanna go out there and build something and hang a shingle. And that excitement can get a little bit shot down with joining a group that's like that, that doesn't give you that support. And, And we've heard a lot about that happening out in the community. But that being said, there's also some some great groups that like Sabine Dons and Michael Bratz's where they're like, no, 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 we're hiring you for a reason. We want you to to build this. We want you to learn from us and continue to grow this. And so it sounds like that was your experience in your second job. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So um, I've actually moved around. This is my third job uh, due to my wife's job situation. Um, so we moved to a job in Philadelphia, which was very, very supportive. Unfortunately. I left just a few months in once my wife and I decided to come back to Chicago. I joined a group out here with five other IRs, and it's been extremely supportive. Uh, Episode 198, I did with Sal Ahmed, who's one of my colleagues. Um, We do run a residency, which has an ESIR spot. And uh, we have a very varied practice, a very, very clinical practice. So each of us has a half day of clinic every other week. And we also see clinic patients between cases. We do the full gamut of interventional radiology, including portal hypertension, fistula work. We do PAD, we do Y90 tace, interventional oncology ablations. We do aortas. Now they're getting more rare due to some reasons for wanting to send them more towards the university setting. But we keep a very busy practice, and it's extremely clinically focused. And I think it's a great fit for me.
0: Let's back up a minute. So you go into this new practice with Saud and. There's all these things that you probably hadn't gotten training. You mentioned kyphoplasty, you mentioned the aortas. So tell me, let's dive into the meat of the topic. How did you learn a new skill set in this new practice?
1: I just want to set a background of my perception of interventional radiology as a field. You know, I feel as though with our training, our background, understanding 3D anatomy with our radiology training, I think that we can do anything in the body using a catheter and a wire. I think knowing my own personal background um, with my father, who was an interventional radiologist, but who spent over 80% of his time doing cardiac angiography in his work. He would even moonlight as a cardiac interventionalist down in Delaware when we lived in South Jersey. I strongly believe that interventional radiologists are uniquely the endovascular specialty that can actually do every single thing inside the body minimally invasively. We thread wires into obstructed ureters and non-dilated biliary systems, and we're doing Y90 in subsegmental branches. I'm not saying PAD is easier by any means. It's a different skill set and learning technique, but relative to some of those things, you know, you can pick up other skills from different aspects of IR and translate them to things that are now not considered solely IR territory. So that is just a background of, of my perception on it and how I went about learning things that I didn't learn in fellowship. For one, um, at my first job, I I started to do some of these things and my biggest supports there were mentors that I already had in community hospitals. You know, I have to give a big shout out to Elias Holostos who works at Elmhurst Hospital here in Chicago. When I was a Northwestern fellow, um, he had a partial academic role, but he was primarily community-based and we were able to rotate out with him. I probably did, you know, two or three kyphoplasties with him. And he, you know, he really, you know, walked us through it and taught us through it. But when we were put on our own, it's a completely different environment. And I felt a lot of confidence in not only speaking with him and really getting my technique down, but then also going to industry-sponsored cadaver labs and figuring out the approach that I was most comfortable with. And the thing that cannot be understated at all is... If you are planning on doing something new, you just have to read every single article you can get your hands on and know all the pitfalls, know what can go wrong, know exactly what you're looking for, and just be very, very active in searching for information on how to do things correctly or as correctly as as we think the right way to do it is right now.
0: You mentioned basically in training, we get this foundation of catheter skills, right, where we can apply that to pretty much anywhere in the body. And we'll we'll talk about stroke in a minute, but just with kyphoplasty, it's kind of the same thing. You can basically stick a needle anywhere in the body under some sort of imaging guidance as well, whether it be CT, fluoro, ultrasound, like those are the skills that you obtain in, in training. Let's talk about kyphoplasty for a minute. You know, we know how to look at the spine in, you know, three dimensions using fluoroscopy. We can visualize it as we move it. And so you know, when I first learned how to do kyphoplasty, that made the most sense. Like you said, it was like, I was mostly afraid of like, okay, what can go wrong? Let me learn what can go wrong before I learn anything. Because the placing the needle into the into the vertebral body was like probably the easiest part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean? And then it's like, okay, let's learn about the cement. Okay, what's it made of? How does it work? How fast can I push it in? And those kinds of things, you're right. That's where the industry is super helpful. And those courses, those cadaver courses are very helpful. But also your colleagues where you're doing some cases, you're getting proctored or supervised and they're watching you infuse that cement, making sure you're not slamming it in there, you know, making sure you're going stepwise and and doing things safely and appropriately. Do you want to comment on that and like how you learned with those first few cases and like how many did you have to do before you were kind of on your own?
1: I was very active with my rep. At Stryker for just plain old kyphoplasty and then with Medtronic for when I was doing ablation plus kyphoplasty for, with the Osteocool system. I, I was very, very upfront with them. I, I told them my experience. I told them I was very interested. And, you know, they, they were familiar with Elias, who's over at Elmhurst, and then also with some of the national leaders in the uh, vertebral augmentation space and, um, and bone ablation space. So they uh, they actually just gave me the cell phone numbers of several of these, you know, national leaders, you know, people like Dr. Levy and Dr. Beal. And, you know, surprisingly, considering how busy those guys are and how, how busy their practices are, I would text them and they would get back to me in like 15 minutes. They didn't really I mean, I I did a course with Doug Beale um a while ago. He remembered me by first name. He, you know, he remembered, you know, small details about my practice in Chicago, even though I texted him, you know, over a year later. And it was just really cool, you know, to know that there are people that will support you, even who aren't there and really gaining anything, particularly by by supporting you in that way. They just really feel strongly about, you know, this uh, this procedure and the way that it can help patients. So we've all done as IRS, we've all done those biopsies of like lung nodules that are hugging the pericardium. We've all done those crazy ones that are, you know. Um, very high up in the apex and you're you're doing crazy gantry angles and stuff. So for me, I felt confident in the radiology skills, as you said, I felt very, very confident. It was more about figuring out what can go wrong. And the biggest thing for that was just reading and then reaching out to actual experts. I mean, I, I can't thank th- their support enough. And uh, I did about four or five cases, probably pretty slowly. And I would, you know, I'd be fluoroing every single turn of the handle. So my fluoro times were like, you know, they weren't dangerously high, but they were higher than what I would expect now. And after about four or five cases and patients just felt great, I I really got my feet under me and 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 got uh, more confident in the kyphoplasty procedure. And after that point, I started offering sacroplasty as well. Um, so I I did the same thing for sacroplasty.
0: Yeah, both those guys are great, Levy and, and Beal. And, you know, Beal's yeah, he's so funny. He's such a big wealth of knowledge, and with his experience, and he's also very generous with his time. As you said, we actually have a, a week of Beal coming up on the Back to a Podcast where I, we have a four part <laughs> series with him. That's excellent. But yeah, Jacob got him on a four hour long interview, but we separated into four parts. So keep an eye out for that audience. It should be good. So it sounds like part of your success in building this new skill set of kyphoplasty was colleagues basically industry helping you find resources like Doug Beale and Jason Levy, and then you know the cadaver course itself. What I remember with getting credentialed at the hospital was I needed to get the certificate via Medtronic that I did the cadaver course training. And then I did like five, it depended on the hospital, but I think I did five or six proctored cases with a colleague. And then I was able to get credentialed for solo, doing those cases solo. Is that about the same for you?
1: Yep, that's about the same. It really varies um, system to system. Some will just want the certificate and say that you're credentialed because the uh, the industry sponsor has put their name behind you. Some will ask for an actual reference from another physician who has proctored you previously. And some will want someone to come in until you've done five. Now, you know, a lot of that, I want the younger IRS to be wary. It will be very dependent on the politics of your hospital. Okay. So, IRs are definitely not the only people that do kyphoplasty or understand its value, and it would be naive to think so. There are definitely other specialties that are interested in expanding kyphoplasty. And, you know, the the best thing to do in that situation is to just approach and try to be as collaborative as possible with those other specialties. And if they already have an established practice and no one in your IR practice is doing it, I simply just told them, hey, listen, man, you're a neurosurgeon, you're opening brains all day. You know, if you have some extra kyphoplasties and you're like not interested in doing them, just send them my way because it's going to take up your OR time. That probably got us about 15 or 20 cases in my second job. Not everybody who's doing kyphoplasty really wants to be doing it, although they believe in it, um, especially non-interventional radiologists or MSK radiologists. So it's worth being collaborative because it's one of those procedures that actually saves lives and it's worth offering to patients.
0: Yeah. I've seen that with some spine surgeons at certain hospitals where they get consulted and they don't seem super excited to be doing the case. And they'll they'll actually reach out and say, hey, can you do this? Can you take care of this today? Because I don't have time. I'm all locked up and they want to get this patient out of the hospital. And you're like, yeah, sure. You know, and it's, it's great to have that relationship with the spine surgeons, especially if you're both doing those cases, because while it's very rare, bad things can happen. And so you want to have that collaborative relationship with your spine surgeons.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. Um, I mean, and and to follow up on that, not everything's roses all the time out in the community as, as we both know. So sometimes there will be groups of the same specialists who are getting the primary consult and who are not referring and who are not doing kyphoplasty primarily themselves. You know, some people who are still Describing to the sham data or uh, the older trials, which have been disproven and which are more based on vertebroplasty. I, I mean, I strongly believe, and, and I see um, just anecdotally with about the 100 plus cases that I've done, probably 200 plus at this point, that it clearly works and patients are so satisfied. And uh, in, in those situations, you know, I think that a clinically minded IR is the perfect person to interject. So at that point, when you go to hospitalists when you go to family medicine doctors and you go to the ER, you show them the more recent data and you show them, you know, actual patient testimonials and your own practice patterns. And you show them that if they get admitted, you could you could have them out as soon as the next day post-procedure. People get really swayed. Uh, the other people who get really swayed are hospital administration um, who understand that this is not going to take up an OR time. It's not going to take up anesthesia plus an OR suite. And it it sort of works for everybody. It's one of those very, very rare win-win-win situations for a hospital, which is extremely, extremely rare, especially when you're talking about something like, quote, turf, where historically over the last 10 to 20 years, IR has not fared very well in a lot of the things that we're talking about compared to other specialties. The best way to handle that situation is just not make it about turf, make it about patient throughput and satisfaction. And and, and you're going to win that every time.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if it's getting the patients out of the hospital faster, then admin's going to listen to you and it improves patient throughput. So let's move on. I want to talk about a couple other skill sets that we've seen people learning outside of training. Two of the big ones are stroke and PAD. And one of your, I guess, more senior IRs out of Northwestern, Sabine, right? Was he yeah. Was he senior to you? He was. He was, uh,
1: he was a chief when I was a first year.
0: Yeah, I love hearing Sabine's story because, you know, he came out of Northwestern and he joined this group in LA and they were like, we're going to teach you how to do PAD, or how to do aortas, we're going to teach you how to do stroke. And I imagine that probably was pretty overwhelming for him to hear, but he learned it. You know, obviously, Sabine's a very smart guy, he's very capable. And now he speaks nationally on these topics. I want to hear your take on pick whichever one, PAD or stroke.
1: Yeah, sure. I don't personally do stroke. Neither of my hospitals is a dedicated stroke center. We have been approached a couple times about developing a stroke practice. And my senior partners did used to do stroke years ago before accreditation as stroke centers was even a thing. But we don't anymore, it's just not something that's in demand right now because we are so close to you know major stroke centers in downtown Chicago. So I, I can't speak as well, but just in that vein, the fact that Sabine has developed his skill set and practice and gotten so nationally recognized in that uh, scope really goes back to what I was saying and and, and what you were echoing a little earlier. Which is that our catheter skill set is very, very, very proficient. You know, anybody graduating from an interventional radiology fellowship is just very good at catheter skills. I mean, the major intracranial vasculature is often larger than the very distal hepatic segmental branch vasculature. You know, a lot of the things that we're doing with prostates and hepatics, even like subsegmental renals, these are one and a half to three millimeter vessels. And for neurovasculature, it's often in the same or slightly larger scope. And um, some of the tools in neurovasculature, which I've used out in like renal vasculature, are just fantastic at this point. And they're so trackable and amazing. And I just think that IRs do have a, uh, a leg up in attacking these kind of problems head on. I think, uh, you know, Sabine's a great example. And I think there are just a whole lot of others out there. He's, he's not the only one that's, you know, out there doing stroke and didn't learn it in fellowship.
0: Yeah. Bratz is another one in Baton Rouge. And, you know, even at his prior practice in Nashville, I mean, he just basically moved to Baton Rouge and his partners were like, hey, we're going to teach a you stroke. You're in the stroke call. And I know it was probably a stressful first six months to a year, but, you know, now it sounds like he's very proficient and comfortable with it, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. I think the catheter skills, you're probably going to get proficient with, you know, after about I don't know what, a dozen cases, you'll see a whole lot that can go right and a whole lot that can go wrong from speaking to other people that do stroke in the IR space. I think it's much more the clinical, Aaron. You know, it the, the clinical is really what drives our programs moving forward. And, you know, that's what I'd like to speak on um, when it comes to PAD, um, because that is certainly a, that interventional radiology was not doing pretty much any of at Northwestern when I was there. And we I have joined a practice and, and developed, you know, a PAD skill set where now Um, in my practice, about 20 to 25% of my practice is PAD. And as far as my clinical follow-ups, it's probably about 30 to 40% of my clinical practice. So I really pride myself on PAD and interventional oncology. That's really what I love doing because I'm doing so much of it on my own now. And definitely venous disease, you know, it's funny for IRs who trained at programs like ours, when we talk about venous disease, because we had so much experience in fellowship. I mean, we had like four or five filter retrievals a day you know at northwestern. um we had at least one or two complex complex Venus reconstructions a week uh, where I trained so when I come out in practice and i'm and I'm offering those services, I don't consider that as new or novel as the p a d and and some of the i o stuff that I'm doing now so For PAD, I think reading really across specialties, a lot of the journals and a lot of just the fundamental approaches to these practices is really is really important. I think when we go into the practice, it can be very daunting, especially when you have someone, you know, with like high grade disease and single vessel runoff. And you think that if you do anything wrong, you're going to trash their leg. And then, you know, a a vascular surgeon might get very upset with you because, you know, you you said you had the skill set. I think that it can be very daunting at first. But once you recognize kind of your algorithm and your skill set, and you've read up enough about the disease state and the clinical management of these patients, it actually becomes a really, really fun procedure to offer. and, And we can offer quite a bit. It's also probably outside of interventional oncology, the most collaborative thing that I do in my practice. So for PAD, I'm talking to our vascular surgeon every single day. I'm talking to our podiatrists every single day, and I'm talking to the patient's primary care doctor every time I do one of these procedures or see the patient and follow up. There are very few things in IR where you're talking across three or four specialties when it comes to an individual patient. And that certainly, you know, makes us a more clinically oriented specialty. And it's something that I, I believe very strongly in.
0: Yeah. So let's back up a minute because I've been in this position. I got zero PAD in in training. And then in my first group, we did runoffs. I did do a little bit of PAD. I learned it from my partners, but then I was kind of out on my own for a little bit and I was trying to find resources to learn more PAD. And I did do some courses. I went up and hung out with Jim Melton and Blake Parsons and learned how to do pedal access. You know, I I looked to industry and they sent me to some courses and I picked up some stuff that way. But tell us back to the basics, like for somebody who wants to just they're starting at zero. They're like, I want to learn a new skill set. It's going to be PAD. I'm going to bring that to my practice. How do you recommend they start?
1: The best resource by far that we have is the other specialists in interventional radiology because it's so unique to us that this was something that we used to do primarily, and now less and less of us are doing it. But there still is a huge amount of IRs, both in academic and private practice that are doing PAD. Um, you know, it's not as advertised as some other places, but it's worth reaching out to these people. So I Again, reached out to the guys at Elmhurst. Andy Blum uh, has been doing this for about 30 years. Elias Holastos has been doing this for about 15 years. They developed this practice out in the community and they were my go-to asking them primarily, especially when I was doing this completely solo without the group that I'm in right now. I would just text, you know, I would be sort of annoying and badger them. (laughs) Um, I would ask them the very basics from, you know, anti-grade to up and over, You know, I I would send them screenshots and videos of, you know, every single case, basically. And I would get very, very meaningful responses. I, I would talk to them about how many vessels we want to preserve and what the best clinical management is. And I made it a point early on to not take on the cases if I wasn't going to be involved in the clinical management. And I think that's a really important part of this because anybody can offer the service inside their hospital, especially if someone's asking them to. But if you're not involved in the clinical side, that business can come and it can go just as quickly. And, you know, you want to position yourself more as a clinical doctor who also is doing the uh, is also doing the clinical part. So I reached out to people first when I knew I wanted to get into it. Then I I did do um, some industry sponsored courses. There were some really good ones. I mean, I'm not going to name particular courses, but there were some that were in Chicago that were very very good. Uh, some were IR, but you know, majority were not IR. Actually, I learned intravascular ultrasound for the arterial side um, through a course like that. That was fantastic. And then when COVID hit. All of these courses were online. So I was looking at some of the great conferences um, put on by John Runbeck and then some of the other ones, including the YouTube channel um, from Srini Tumala down in Miami, you know, and then several of uh, of these other uh, practitioners out there in both academic and non-academic settings have just been. Super helpful. I would not know half of what I know about about the actual composition of the wires, which is a very important part of PAD practice, if I hadn't listened to their in-depth conversations. It can be very digestible, and you can certainly break it up however you want, but it helps to supplement that with reading. And for me personally, I, I do think that JVS is the most easily navigable journal to go through when it comes to PAD. It's very... It's very focused on the actual PAD outcomes and techniques. You can supplement that as an IR with a lot of the JVIR techniques and also seminars and interventional radiology. There's some great stuff in seminars when it comes to PAD as well. So just remembering that you're not a vascular surgeon when you're reading JVS and then going back to IR journals and also reading them and supplementing. I found to be extremely helpful you know i'm sure that cardiologists do that as well in reading their own journals and, and supplementing with with some of our journals and vascular surgeries journals as well it can certainly be collaborative but you know you got to really fine-tune your skill set and understand the, the pathophys before you get out there
0: for sure you know for example we were talking about io you know sir has a nice well-defined you know curriculum for learning y90 and then Sirtex and the Theraspheres, I think they have proctors that'll come do cases with you. It seems very streamlined. And I, I imagine that's a combination of efforts by SIR and industry to like help people learn it, get it, build that service line. Is there anything like that for PAD? I, I, I totally agree with you. Collaborating with other specialties is great. You mentioned a lot of different sources out there. It can be a little bit overwhelming when you look at all that stuff. Is there anything that's more streamlined, like a course... That Sir puts on or JVS that you know that people can you know learn everything in a week, for example, and then do some cases with a colleague.
1: I mean, I I know that uh, Sir does put on the Learn conference, L E A R N, which is uh, which is particular for uh, PAD. I think it was in Nashville. I don't think it was last year because of COVID, but I think uh, you know a couple years ago. So I I haven't done that course. I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, most of the speakers and the faculty that are in that course are on other aspects of the speaking circuit, and they're either speaking for industry or they are speaking individually and locally at, at conferences You know, in the Chicagoland area. Luckily, we have some great IR, PAD operators here. Uh, the guys up at Rush in particular are, are uh, pretty nationally known for some of their CLI work. And then there's another conference in Chicago, which I did go to three years ago, called uh, AMP, the AMP Conference, which was uh, put on by the private practice guys out in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Primarily, and just just fantastic. I mean, when you talk about CLI focused, I mean every talk I went to was CLI focused. You know, it there. There was a lot of pedal access talk. There was a lot of you know advanced techniques and Safari and all the things that I was a little more hesitant about doing. But now, after seeing the data that they show, and also, you know, the outcomes that they show, sometimes you just have to go and, and make that third or fourth effort for the sake of a patient's leg if, if you're going to be taking PADs seriously. And I, I found those conferences to be great. The one conference which I've heard is just fantastic for this is NCVH down in New Orleans every year. I haven't had a chance to go as yet, but that's certainly on my, on my short list. As I get out of my first few years of practice... I have really enjoyed sir i mean i like being an sir member i found that it can very much be mouth open at a water hose situation there's just a lot of info and at times it can be hard to digest when i've gone to sir live i've actually found myself being a little more social than yeah. uh, than, than yeah. there for work you know just seeing all these people that i hadn't seen in a year or two or three catching up and i've sort of dedicated myself to now attending conferences which are really going to be primarily focused on on getting me into my late the later part of my early career and into my mid-career and trying to really hone down and focus on the skill sets that I'm trying to continue to develop because I'm learning stuff every single day.
0: Yeah. Like be more intentional about the choices you make in terms of conferences. You're right, because SIR is very there's so much going on and a lot of times at the same time. And it can be very overwhelming, but it's also it is a lot of fun. I know a lot of people that go just for social purposes, networking, and and that's the great thing about it, right, is is you get to catch up with people. And you mentioned a lot of these smaller conferences that are great, and like OEIS is another one, where it's a smaller group and it's a little bit more focused, right? It might even just be one aspect of PAD, like practice building. And so I think that's solid advice for anybody out there to just be careful you can't go to everything and get feedback from others you know before you sign up for something it's like hey who's gone to this in the years past what did you learn with you know I'm thinking about adding PD to my practice what do you recommend i go to the NCVH uh, was started by Craig Walker he's coming on the show this week with Sabine to talk a little bit about history of endovascular procedures and then the guys from AMP like Jihad Mustafa and Fadi Saab we've had on the show as well so i love having all those guys on you know they've created some great resources as you mentioned and Trini Tumula also a good friend and what a great Sebastian channel so i love that you gave shout outs to all those guys so before we finish up i do want to make one comment about PAD don't build it unless you're passionate about it it's it's a true it's a real commitment you look at guys like we just mentioned Jihad Mustafa, there is a passion for PAD coming from those guys and same with you and Sabine and and that's not for everybody right some people are more passionate about MSK or you know, lung biopsies, whatever. Just focus on what you're passionate about, but don't feel FOMO. Don't feel like you need to dabble in PAD just so that you can be part of the conversation. Because that's not gonna do your patients any good. That's not gonna do you any good. You're gonna have complications because you're not that into it, right? You don't know enough about it because you don't you haven't spent the time and energy to really, like you said, master the disease process. So that would be my word of advice. Don't delve into it unless you're super passionate about it. And you should know pretty quick after reading a few
1: articles, are you really into this? I could not agree more. And it's not an easy disease state. Kumar has a really great line about PAD and saying that it's uh, it's cancer of the lower extremities. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. You know, you are battling time when it comes to PAD. Eventually, the disease will get these guys. It's It's almost like glaucoma in a way um because w- we have stop gaps but we don't necessarily have a cure or a fix that being said it's also just the tip of the iceberg with a lot of these patients who may not have had a stroke or, or who may not have had an MI at that point but you are responsible in every way you might be their only vascular doctor and you you really have to follow up on their overall health and be passionate about taking care of the overall patient that has been the plight of IR in my opinion you know, seeing how my dad used to practice when his room in the basement was called specials. Although he was doing all the cardiac angiography for every hospital he ever worked in, his room was just called specials, you know, send a patient down to specials, they're never gonna see him again anyways. To what we've developed now as clinically focused interventional IRs, I learn a lot from those lessons and I take that onus on myself. I wanna expand on that just for a minute further and say, if you do not yet have the infrastructure Say, for example, with a scheduler or an MA or somebody who can help, you're not going to be able to take this on yourself if you are trying to get a fully developed clinical practice. Try to get that infrastructure in place before or after your first case, ideally before your first case, because it is really, really crucial to have that infrastructure in place and make the patients feel secure when they come to your office. They know that they're seeing you. You have a full support staff. You have everything in place and you're looking out for their overall health. Saud touched on this in episode 198. There is a lot of clinical IR in name only going on out there. You know, we hear about it. We see it. We are technically an OSH, you know, because we're not a major academic center. But we we make our patients feel like they are at a four star OBL outpatient center. And that's how everybody should be feeling when they're coming in for such important work. So I feel like setting up that infrastructure is step one before you go out and start marketing your skill set, because the patients will come. If you're passionate and you care, the patients will come, but your referrers will be very, very disappointed if the clinical aspect is not a positive experience for their patients.
0: Yeah. It's almost like if you're going to build a new skill set like that, it's almost like you got to write out a business plan. Okay, this is what I need to make sure, yeah, that the patients have full head-to-toe clinical care from me in my service line, whether it be PAD or kyphoplasty. I mean, you definitely want to follow up with them. You want to know what your results are, right? Um, You want to keep in touch with that primary care doc that sent them to you so that you know that they had a positive outcome And so I think those are solid pearls that you just shared. That the infrastructure is just as important as the skill set.
1: You know, going back to kyphoplasty, I want to say not every kyphoplasty works. I, I mean, having done you know a couple hundred of these now, there are definitely several that the pain is not that much better. The patient's still having difficulty, and it may be a combination of problems. There may be you know a fracture as well as another neurogenic cause of pain, or you know, musculoskeletal cause of pain, and. Reading up, I read Doug Beale's whole book, reading up on what else can be going on and what else either you or someone else can offer is super important. I've certainly referred patients to the pain clinic after I've done kyphoplasty and it's failed. I've also certainly seen some nerve inflammation after you know a bony lesion that's very close to cortex. And I've put people on medral dose packs. I followed them up for days to weeks to months to make sure that things resolved and got back to normal and i think it, it promotes the kind of physician that you are out in the community and and word of mouth goes a very long way particularly if, if you're not at like a quaternary care center M- most people know who you are you know by the end of your first year practicing there
0: yeah just as an aside like i'm, I'm trying to learn more about ai right now and i ask people hey what's a good starter book and everybody says oh deep medicine by eric topol and so i, I got that book but I think along those same lines, for anybody that wants to start out doing kyphoplasty, the book to get is Vertebral Augmentation by Doug Beale. And, I, and for those of you who can't see, I'm holding it up, but I think it was on Amazon. Pretty affordable. You know, It's not just Doug, it's a bunch of uh, other editors and contributors, but it's a great resource. It basically tells you everything in one comprehensive book. So I highly recommend that as a starting point. Again, like Shami just said, if you're able to Read that from head to toe, and really feel like you're passionate about that disease process, then yeah, get the skill set, build it out. But if you're bored to death and you're falling asleep, then I would say move on, keep doing what you're doing. You know, yeah, it's not for
1: everybody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some people feel that passionate about, about venous disease and HD work and yeah. uh, interventional oncology, which can be uh, you know its own practice on its own. And I think that's the beauty of IR. You are not limited by one disease state. You can go out and market yourself and your practice and your skill set to anybody in the hospital, and they can find something for you to do if you're passionate about it. And that is the nail on the head. Like that's super, super important. That is what we'll show first, right after your case. You're too busy to be bothered by the phone call. You're never getting a call from that referrer again. I mean, don't even think about it because sure. they have five other people they can call. Trust me. You don't want to be the one guy that hangs up or one woman that hangs up. That's just not who you want to be. So find what you really like and don't spread yourself too thin. Is the other is the other thing I would say. If you are giving good service, you'll be inundated very very quickly. Your clinic will fill up, and then you're going to end up being the doctor that has a three or four month waiting list and referrers are going to stop at that point as well. So it is certainly a balance, which I think is how you introduce the topic in the beginning. It's definitely a balance and there's enough out there for everybody to get their fill and everyone to really highlight the services and skill set that they have. Yeah. Well, all good stuff.
0: Shama, anything that we're leaving out, any final thoughts before we sign off?
1: Man, I love this podcast. I, I listen to it every week. I'm pretty active about it on like social media, on Twitter, and I, I think what you're doing is fantastic. For guys like me that you know knew from the get go that I didn't want to go into the academic setting, I really respect my colleagues on the academic side, but I do think that you're giving very practical and sound advice to people that are out there in either the outpatient OBL or the community hospital setting. And can't thank you enough. Can't wait to uh, you know to see uh, where this goes in the future as well. Appreciate
0: it, man. And I mean, look, you're going to be uh guest hosting a couple in the near future. So appreciate you giving your time and, and energy towards this. I mean, this is kind of what we envisioned back in the day was just guys like us out there helping each other out. And it's one thing to have people's cell phones and jump on the phone with people, which is awesome. That's definitely helpful, especially in the moment. But it, it's nice to have, like, a, like you said, something that comes out weekly monthly whatever the cadence is where it's practical and useful and helps people like our episode today helps you build that practice because i think that's what a lot of people come especially early on coming out training that's what they're hungry for that's what i was hungry for and it's hard because sometimes we get no's we get we get blank looks we get people that are skeptical and it's nice to hear from other people who think the same way like no no you can do that just you got to take this approach Uh, We appreciate contributors like yourself and look forward to the episodes you got coming up. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson.
1: And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
0: Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.